0: And with that, we are going to dive into God's Word together. Once again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So make sure you have your Bible with you. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5 in just a few moments. We'll start in verse 17 as we continue the study of the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes when we listen to a sermon, we can put our minds and our, our brains on cruise control. Sometimes we listen to a sermon and it's just easy. We don't have to do a lot of thinking. We don't have to turn the pages of the Bible too much. And uh, we can just kind of veg a little bit and we'll still get the main message uh, that that pastor is trying to convey. Well, I've got to tell you, this message today is not a cruise control kind of message. you're going to have to put your thinking caps on because Jesus is going to bring up some things in these four little verses we look at today from the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to bring up some things that really challenge us, that that really shake up the way that we normally think about church, about Christianity, about religion, about the Old Testament. He's going to shake us up a bit, so I need you to have your thinking caps on, and in order to help you do that, I'm going to send some questions your way, and I want you to silently answer every one of these questions. Would you do that for me? Let me throw these questions at you, just answer them, just between you and the Lord. Question number one, have you ever known an atheist who wasn't saved? Number two, have you ever known a a Muslim or a, a Buddhist who wasn't saved? Number three, have you ever known a Mormon who wasn't saved? Five, have you ever known a Catholic who wasn't saved? And then finally, let me ask you, have you ever known a Christian Who wasn't saved. I want you to imagine Jesus coming up to you and looking you right in the eye and saying, some of the best Christians you've ever known aren't going to make it to heaven. How would you respond to that? Some of the best Christians you've ever known aren't going to make it to heaven. I'm calling today's message Raising the bar. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. So here we are, Matthew 5, 17. I'm reading from the New International Version. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless us as we read and study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, here in these four little verses, Jesus tackles two colossal misunderstandings that many people in his day had, and frankly, many people in our day still have. The first misunderstanding is about Jesus' view of the Old Testament. And the second misunderstanding is about what a true follower of God looks like. And so we're going to allow Jesus to tackle both of these misunderstandings as we look a little closer at these four verses. In these four verses we just read, Jesus tackles head on these two huge misunderstandings. And I think you'll find that these verses shed a lot of light on some of your own questions about the Old Testament and Christianity. So let's start with the first misunderstanding, and I'm going to say it this way. Misunderstanding number one, Jesus came to abolish The Old Testament, Jesus came to abolish the Old Testament. Jesus addresses this misunderstanding in verses 17 and 18. I want you to notice in verse 17 that Jesus mentions the law and the prophets. Now, when he mentions the law and the prophets, it's important to understand that in Jesus's day, law and the prophets was a term the Jews used to describe the entire Old Testament. So the law specifically was what they called the first five books of the Old Testament. They also called it the Torah, the Hebrew word for target. First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the first five books, that was the law. And then everything else, the other, uh, what would that be? 31 books, uh, they lumped into that category, the prophets. And so when Jesus says, Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Translated, do not think that I have come to abolish the Old Testament. By the time Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, rumors had already begun to, to spread that he was starting a religious revolution. Many Jews, especially those in the religious establishment, had come to believe that Jesus wanted to scrap the Jewish religion. And along with it, scrap the entire Old Testament. After all, Jesus ignored many of the time-honored Jewish customs, uh, like ceremonial hand-washing and fasting every Friday. The Pharisees did that. The religious teachers did that. Why wasn't Jesus doing that? Jesus did rebellious things like, oh, I don't know, healing a crippled man on the Sabbath day. How dare he? He was not following the traditions of the religious leaders, and he was not strictly obeying that fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, never heal anybody on the Sabbath day. Uh, Jesus did weird things like uh, having meals with tax collectors and prostitutes and other lowlifes. No self-respecting rabbi in Jesus' day would have ever been caught dead having a meal with those low lives in society. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus didn't tiptoe around the religious leaders and treat them like royalty. Now that was inexcusable, right? So, Jesus, this rumor began to circulate, was trying to scrap Judaism, to flush it down the toilet, and the Old Testament with it. Many Jews in Israel were confused about what Jesus thought about the Old Testament. Others were convinced that Jesus wanted to scrap it all together. They believed that Jesus wanted to put the Old Testament on the trash heap of history and burn it into ashes. And honestly, in our day, many Christians believe much the same thing. Many Christians believe that the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament law, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy belongs on the ash heap of history and is irrelevant for us today. And to that, Jesus says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Allow that to sink in for just a moment. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then Jesus elaborates on his point in verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I really like how the Living Bible translates verse 17. It says it this way, don't misunderstand why I've come. It isn't to cancel the laws of Moses and the warnings of the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them and to make them all come true. Isn't that good? As Jesus delivers the greatest sermon of all time, he turns to his followers and to the crowd and says, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill the law and I'm not here to cancel the prophecies. I'm here to make all the prophecies come true. You should be excited about how I handle the Old Testament, not afraid of it. As you probably know, one of the reasons why we can be so certain that Jesus was the promised Christ is because he is the only person in the history of the world to fulfill hundreds of those Old Testament prophecies. He was born in Bethlehem of a virgin in the family line of King David. Those are fulfillments of Micah 5, 2 and Isaiah 7, 14 and Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. He came out of Egypt and grew up in Nazareth and proclaimed good news to the poor and proclaimed freedom for the captives. Those are fulfillments of Hosea 11, verse 1 and Isaiah 61, verse 1. Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter and he was pierced and men cast lots for his clothing and he was raised to life. Uh, those are fulfillments of the very detailed prophecies of Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalm chapter 22. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Directly or indirectly, Jesus fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. So we all understand that Jesus had no desire or intention to eliminate the Old Testament prophetic books. When we talk about those hundreds of prophecies, many of them were directly f- fulfilled. Many of those were clear foreshadowings and allusions to Jesus Christ's coming. And so in hindsight, we can see there were literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. He fulfilled all of them. Now there's still uh, dozens more that Jesus will fulfill at his second coming, but no one in the history of the world has fulfilled prophecies like Jesus. So most Christians understand, no, we don't want to scrap those Old Testament prophets because they proclaim Jesus, right? All of those books serve as a huge neon arrow pointing right to Jesus. If you read the New Testament... And you aren't convinced that Jesus is the Christ and the son of the living God. Just go back to those old Testament prophets and read what they say about the coming Christ. And I'll, I'll just say it this way to make it a little simpler for you. Just read Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53. Just read those two chapters and you will be convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Those were written more than 600 years before Jesus was born. In the case of the Psalms, written probably more like a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And they describe what he went through in such wonderful detail. Oh, those prophecies. No, Jesus didn't come to scrap them. They were a neon arrow pointing straight to Jesus. Well, keep this in mind. The ancient Jewish scribes, counted 613 laws of Moses in those first five books. So most of us can wrap our minds around this notion that no, Jesus did not come to scrap the prophets. The prophetic books proclaim the coming Christ. They point to the coming Christ. They affirm that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But we struggle today in the church and the Jews in Jesus's day who heard him preach struggled as well with what to do with those first five books, those 613 laws, how do they hold up to Jesus? How how do we deal with those if we choose to follow Jesus? Well, it's important to know that of those 613 laws of Moses, they really fall into three categories. You have the, the moral law, and then you have the civil law, And then you have the ceremonial law. So all 613 laws can fall into one of those three categories, moral, civil, or ceremonial. The moral law contains laws like the Ten Commandments, which are timeless. They are to be obeyed by every follower of God in all times and places. Okay, we could debate a little bit about the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We'll save that for another sermon. But in general, all Ten Commandments... Absolutely are to be obeyed by God's followers in all times and places. They are timeless. The civil law, that second category, contains specific laws for the nation of Israel that helped maintain law and order when Israel was a nation in Old Testament times. So those civil laws, any uh, civil society needs certain laws to, to maintain law and order. And so we had certain of those 613 laws that were civil laws. And then finally, the ceremonial laws. Uh, those are like the laws we read in Leviticus chapter one about how to properly slaughter a lamb that you're sacrificing there at the temple or, or how to properly wring the head off of a dove, grab it by the wings and pull it into if you're offering a bird sacrifice. That stuff that just grosses us out, that all falls under the ceremonial law. Those were laws specific for Israel to follow as they had that Old Testament ceremonial Judaism. So long story short, Jesus came to reinforce the old Testament moral law, and he came to fulfill the intention of the civil and the ceremonial law. So that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? He came to reinforce the moral law. That's the collection of laws. That's timeless. And he came to fulfill the intention of the civil and ceremonial law, those laws that were uh, more specific for the uh, people of ancient Israel. So what all does that mean? Well, Warren Wearsby, I think, explains it really well. He writes, Jesus did not destroy the law by fighting it. He destroyed it by fulfilling it. Perhaps an illustration will make this clear. If I have an acorn, I can destroy it in one of two ways. I can put it on a rock and smash it to bits with a hammer. Or I can plant it in the ground and let it fulfill itself by becoming an oak tree. Isn't that good? Isn't that eye-opening? So did Jesus come to take out a hammer and beat the Old Testament law to a bloody pulp? No, never. The Jewish people didn't realize that for the past 2,500 years, God had been planting those 613 laws as seeds in the ground. said that wrong the last 1,500 years, not 2,500, but for the last 1,500 years, God had been planting those laws as seeds in the ground. And if people were to step back and open their eyes, they would see that those 613 laws blossomed into a living, breathing, neon arrow pointing right to Jesus. Amen? We don't need to slaughter sheep and birds anymore, not because those laws have become abolished, but because Jesus' sacrifice has made those laws obsolete. We don't have Aaron's priesthood anymore, and, and uh we don't have to fulfill these temple rituals anymore, not because Jesus scrapped Aaron's priesthood or scrapped the temple rituals, but because Jesus's greater priesthood and superior ministry have made them obsolete. And so Jesus didn't come to abolish the ceremonial and civil law, he came to fulfill it. See the difference? So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 5, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 18, Jesus speaks of the smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen. The old King James translates these words as jot and tittle. Uh, Here's an image for you of what those look like. Uh, The smallest Hebrew letter is the letter yod. It's like our English apostrophe. It's just a little little slash. That's the smallest Hebrew letter that Jesus was referring to here. He said not a, a single yod will disappear from the Old Testament. And he said not the least stroke of a pen, so the tiniest little stroke of a pen in Hebrew is that tiny little tail on the letter Beth. It's just a tiny little slash you can see in that image that separates it from a different letter. Jesus says not even the smallest letter or the tiniest mark will be abolished from the Old Testament law until everything is accomplished. So what are you and I to do with the Old Testament and particularly the Old Testament law? Are we to take out a hammer and beat it to a bloody pulp? No, never. What do we do with the Old Testament law? We read it, we study it, and we step back and marvel at how it is a beautiful neon arrow pointing right to Jesus. Amen? Let's move on to the second misunderstanding. Jesus tackles the second misunderstanding in verse 20, and I like to say it this way, misunderstanding number two, a true follower of God looks like a Pharisee. A true follower of God looks like a Pharisee. Jesus tackled that misunderstanding in verse 20. I want you to look again at that verse. Jesus in verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the most significant, one of the most foundational verses in the entire Sermon on the Mount. We have to understand this verse, because to a very large extent, the entire Sermon on the Mount was blowing out of the water this misunderstanding about being like Pharisees in order to make it to heaven. I'm not sure that we can fully appreciate how utterly shocking this statement in verse 20 was to the people who were on the mountainside with Jesus that day. Most people in the crowd that day were just regular Joes, blue collar workers. These guys were farmers and they were fishermen and, and, uh, you know, they were tradesmen and there were housewives and homemakers in the bunch that day. They were just everyday Joes and Janes. They were by no means super saints. However, those people in the crowd that day, they knew who the super saints were, didn't they? They knew who the super saints were. Obviously, the super saints were the Jewish religious leaders. Those teachers of the law, some translations say it as scribes. Those teachers of the law, those scribes, they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. And what about those Pharisees? Woo, those Pharisees, they were something else. Those Pharisees obeyed the Old Testament laws. Like none other, man, those guys were strict constructionists. Boy, they, they obeyed the law. If anybody obeyed the law, right? And so the Pharisees and teachers of the law had a reputation for being the super saints in Israel and the everyday Joe didn't think that there was any chance of him himself being as good as any of those super saints, any of those religious leaders. So when Jesus tells the crowd point blank, don't miss this. When he tells them point blank, if your righteousness doesn't surpass their righteousness, you're going to hell. You better believe that they suddenly got a big pit in their stomach. And they must have thought to themselves, all this time, I thought if anyone makes it to heaven, it'll be them. It'll be that guy over there with the religious garb on, that rabbi, that Pharisee, that scribe. If anyone makes it to heaven, they're going to make it to heaven. So if Jesus is right, and they're not going to make it to heaven, then I don't have a prayer. I have no chance. There's no hope for me. And as the people in the crowd begin grappling with this revelation that shattered their preconceived notions and shook them to the core, Jesus will spend the rest of chapter five explaining and illustrating the clear difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees and true righteousness. The kind of righteousness that will mark those who truly are in the kingdom of heaven. Well, it really boils down to this. The Pharisees righteousness was artificial. It was fake. It looked good on the outside, but it was rotten on the inside. It was like a wedding dress on a cockroach. Looked great on the outside. Corrupt. Empty. Ugly on the inside. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 23, and you may want to do that right now with your Bibles open. If you turn to Matthew 23, Jesus gives us a really good summary of how rotten and hypocritical those Pharisees really were. Their righteousness was pretty rotten. Jesus spoke these words in Matthew 23, just a few days before those same Pharisees yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Imagine that they yelled those words, maybe just 48, 72 hours, perhaps after he says what he says here in Matthew 23, it's almost as if they didn't like what he had to say about them very much. The truth hurts. Well, let me quickly summarize these seven woes that Jesus levels on the religious hypocrites, those Pharisees and teachers of the law there in Matthew 23. The first woe we find in verses 13 and 14, Jesus basically says, Woe to you for your arrogance, pretending that you have the authority to decide who can and can't be saved. Woe number two in verse 15, Woe to you for leading sinners to your rituals instead of leading them to God. Woe number three, verses 16 through 22. Woe to you for coming up with flimsy excuses to justify your lies. Woe number four in verses 23 and 24. Woe to you for majoring in the minors and completely neglecting true godly character. Woe number five in verse 25 and 26. Woe to you for looking squeaky clean on the outside, but being corrupt on the inside. You're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe number six in verses 27 and 28. Woe to you for practicing a religion that is all about impressing people and getting them to comment on how godly you are. Woe number seven, verses 29 through 32. Woe to you for honoring dead prophets while murdering the living prophets. Well, when it comes down to it, Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount to smash the Old Testament law to bits with a hammer. Jesus preached it to smash to bits the fake, shallow religion of the Pharisees. Jesus makes it clear in these four little verses, no, I didn't come to abolish Or to destroy the Old Testament law. Quite the opposite. I've come to lift it up and to fulfill it. But what I have come to do. Is to demolish. And destroy. And annihilate. This presumptuous. Fake. Shallow Judaism. That has been emulated and followed. By the religious leaders. That you live among. Jesus did come to abolish. Phariseeism. And Jesus. Jesus is still attacking and demolishing Phariseeism today. He's still attacking and demolishing shallow, flashy, self-centered religion. Most Americans identify as Christians. But it is clear from what Jesus teaches us here in the Sermon on the Mount that most Americans are not saved. Most who call themselves Christians are not saved. Most who claim to be Christians have not entered the kingdom of heaven. The religion that they lean on is nothing but Phariseeism. In all likelihood, some of your family members and friends who call themselves Christians are not followers of Christ. They are Pharisees. In all likelihood, some church members you have known and and loved are not followers of Christ. They are Pharisees. I'm sad to say in all likelihood, In a group the size of those of us who are watching this broadcast at some point today, some of us in all likelihood have known deacons and elders and worship leaders, and I dare say maybe even a pastor or two, who were not followers of Christ. They were Pharisees. And something inside of us objects to this notion. We say, but his morals are better than mine. Uh, She's attended church twice as much as I have. He prays better than me. She's memorized more Bible verses than me. He is one of the best Bible teachers I've ever known. Uh, She sings amazing grace like an angel. No matter. Your righteousness must exceed theirs, Jesus says, or you won't make it to heaven. Who cares If you've given your tithe, if you haven't given your heart to Christ. Because you see, your righteousness must stem from a heart that has been radically transformed by the blood of Jesus. Your righteousness must come from the inside out. So who cares if you go to church once a week if you're not going to God seven days a week? Who cares if you've memorized John 3.16 if you haven't responded to John 3.16? Who cares if you can point out others' sin if you haven't repented of your own sin? Who cares if uh, the driver's seat of your life is neat and tidy and squeaky clean if you haven't placed Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life? If you take an honest look at your religion and you honestly evaluate it and realize that your religion is shallow and flashy and dressed to impress, you are a Pharisee. It doesn't matter how much you appear to have it all together. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you join Jesus in smashing your Phariseeism to smithereens. Jesus says, you got to get rid of it. You got to destroy it. Shallow, hypocritical, surfacey religion will never allow you to enter the kingdom of heaven. With love in his eyes, Jesus looks at you and me and says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is raising the bar. What are you going to do about it? Some of you might think, well, pastor, this is Valentine's day. That wasn't a particularly cheery message. Aren't you going to say something about love? Well, as a matter of fact, I am. Jesus Christ loves you and me too much to allow us to lie to ourselves. That jumping through religious hoops and looking good on the outside and doing all sorts of good works is sufficient to get us into the kingdom of heaven. He loves you and me too much to allow us to believe that lie. He says it will never be enough. It wasn't enough for the Pharisees. It wasn't enough for the teachers of the law. And it's not enough for us today. Jesus raises the bar. We have to put him in the driver's seat of our life and allow his righteousness to flow from the inside out. That's his message here. He wants our righteousness to be real, flowing from the inside out so that we, with his help, can attain to what that, that standard that he has set for us. So once again, I ask you, Jesus Christ is raising the bar. What are you going to do about it? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you never ask us to do anything that is beyond our reach with your strength. As Paul understood I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord Jesus, forgive us if we've been playing the game of pretend. If our religion, if our Christianity, if our faith has been shallow and surfacy and showy, flashy, forgive us, Lord. I pray that you would truly transform my heart. I pray that you would truly transform each of our hearts. Give us a a new heart that beats for you, that loves you with everything we've got. And from that love, we carry out your commands, not to show off, not because we're earning our way to heaven, but because we love you. And you are truly our Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus, help each of us to enter the kingdom of heaven by carrying out this type of life, by living this type of life that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. We learned in our study of the Beatitudes this past month that there really is only one way to come to Jesus, and that's to come to him humbly. If you come with all of your religious accolades, I've gone to church for 50 years and I was baptized 17 times and I've tithed every year of my life for the last 275 years. If you go with all of your religious credentials and accolades, it means nothing to him. You have to come to him broken. You have to come to him empty. And say, Lord Jesus, despite any good or religious thing I've ever done, it's meaningless unless you save me. Oh, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life today if you've never done that before. I encourage you to to just lift up in prayer those ABCs to Jesus. A, admit to Him that you are a sinner and you need His salvation. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins because you could never be good enough or religious enough to make it to heaven on your own. And C, choose to follow Jesus Christ from this point forward. Choose to put Him in the driver's seat of your life. And follow him not just as your Savior, but as your Lord. And as you carry out those good works and as you participate in that religion, it will suddenly mean something. Because it becomes a thank you gift to Jesus as he leads your life and as you show your appreciation for the wonderful blessings he's given to you. The best one of all, your salvation. If you're here with us today and you need prayer, we encourage you to reach out to one of our prayer counselors. If you made a decision for Christ, we encourage you to reach out to one of them as well. One of the disadvantages of being online every week is you don't get a bulletin. You don't get to fill out one of those little connect cards where you can let us know if, if you need prayer for something or uh, if you want to start receiving the vision letter uh, each month. It gives you a little overview of some things going on at the church and uh, how things are going financially and, and, and whatnot as well. So uh, you, you don't really have that if you don't have a, a bulletin in hand. But you can reach out to us right now. And you can call us anytime at the office. If there's anything we can do for you, please let us know. But if you are a believer and follower of Christ, we encourage you to take of the bread and the juice on this wonderful Lord's Day, which also happens to be Valentine's Day. I want you to think of this bread a little bit differently right now. Yes, I want you to think about those sins in your life that need confessing. I want you to think about the body of Christ. But when he said, this is my body broken for you, he basically was saying this. This is my body broken because I love you. Jesus loves you. And I want you to think of his love for you that led him all the way to the cross as you take the bread. And the juice... Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for you. Or we could say it this way. This is my blood poured out in love for you. Think, think of his great love as you take of the juice with me. Lord Jesus, wash us clean. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close our service, we invite you to lift up one final song with us. And as this song is being sung, if you're not singing along with it, I encourage you to be in prayer. Go to your Lord and say, Lord Jesus, take me deeper. Help my righteousness to stem from the inside. I want my faith and my religion and my Christianity to be deep and real. Help me, Lord Jesus. God bless you, church. We'll see you next week.